Good morning, all. Trying something a bit different technology-wise. Uh, I fear I may have bitten off more than I can chew today. Oh, there we go. The idea is that um, people online can see the slides as well as me. Unfortunately, they can see me too. Um, so uh, hopefully this is working. Hopefully everybody can hear me online as well. Uh, just before I start, I should say um, I, I've appeared before you as a bit of a wreck in, in multiple ways. It's been a very difficult week, and thank you so much for those who have been praying for us. Um, I also forgot a fairly key thing that I needed this morning, so I had to frantically talk Sharon around <laughs> through getting it to me, that slide deck. And uh, I don't really know what I'm doing, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, that's what I'm counting on, Julie. God, God will help me. Um, because, to be honest, the words that I have to bring are pointless without him anyway. Um, so, we are looking today at Colossians 2, 16 to 19. And I'm going to read them, I'm going to read these verses from the NLT. So, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. We thank you, Father, for the words that you have given us, and we just ask you to open our hearts. Bless and anoint my mouth, Lord, as I speak, and we all together want to receive truth from you. Amen. A good friend of mine holds the view that we should be able to sum up most presentations in a single sentence. I wouldn't insist on this for a sermon, mainly because the Holy Spirit uses these times to do far more than I could ever predict, and I wouldn't by any means want to constrain or contain him. But it's still a useful discipline. It helps a preacher to avoid waffle. Find your one-sentence summary and make sure everything you say points to that sentence. I try to stick to this principle broadly, which is probably not obvious because I'm still very much an amateur. So what to use as my one-sentence summary today? One option is to cheat and just use whatever title appears in the text. As you probably know, these little titles that you see above the verses, they weren't part of the original. Um, in the ESV, the title above today's passage is Let No One Disqualify You. Let No One Disqualify You. Hmm. In the NIV, it's Freedom From Human Rules. Freedom From Human Rules. Okay, I suppose. But they don't really sum up our four verses very well. In the New King James, the nearest title in the text says, not legalism, but Christ. Ooh, I like that. Not legalism, but Christ. But I wonder if we can go slightly further 
in my plagiarism. And instead of using something the translators added, instead nick something directly from the text itself. What about in verse 19? In the ESV, it talks about holding fast to the head. Capital H. The head is Christ. I really like that. That nails it. So my one-sentence summary of this sermon is hold fast to the head. It's even alliterative. Marvelous. Hold fast to the head. My work here is done. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. But perhaps we should expand on that just a little. What does it mean? How do we do it? If we're holding to the head, does that perhaps mean we are leaving alone other luggage? Sorry. We should unpick this, shouldn't we? But I first want to tell you about the five sole. Sole. Sole is the plural of solar, which is a Latin word meaning alone. Why are we talking about Latin, Rob? Okay, well, some of you already know where we're going, but bear with me. Very brief history lesson. The Protestant Reformation started in the 16th century, around about 1517. And we're not worrying about the details now. Suffice it to say, this was a very successful effort to bring the church back to the main principles of the gospel and to lay down, to set aside the man-made tradition that had accumulated around Christianity. In short, the church needed a course correction. Now, in the last century, the 20th, theologians brought together some of the main principles from the Reformation, and they expressed them as the five sole. They are these. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. I don't know why they had to be in Latin. Don't shoot the messenger. In English, they are Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, glory to God alone. This is all about salvation, okay? Scripture, nothing else. Faith, nothing else. Grace, nothing else. Jesus, no one else. And all for the glory of God and no one else. Scripture, faith, grace, Jesus, the glory of God. Now, why have I dragged you through the torture of a combined history and Latin lesson? It's because of the fourth, the fourth one, solus Christus, through Christ alone. One of the core principles of the Reformation, something the church had lost hundreds of years ago, something the church is in grave danger of losing again, was this principle of our faith being through Christ alone. Does that remind you of my one-sentence summary? Hold fast to the head. The head is Christ. This principle is so important that we have to say it again and again, in different words, at different times, and in different languages. Paul's saying it to his readers in the first century, and Martin Luther and the other reformers said it to their contemporaries, and I'm saying it to you now, but in my case it's not original, and I claim no great revelation. I just know it's important, and it's true. So hanging tightly to that thread, let's weave in the others from today's passage. Colossians 2, verse 16. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul says, therefore, and as we so often see with Paul, the thought in this verse follows from what he's just said, which we saw in Keith's sermon last week on the previous verses. So, to summarize the previous passage, we've been made Christ's, we've been subject to his good discipline and transformation, and our sins and the law's punishment for those sins are cancelled. We're Christ's, we're in great shape, therefore. Since we're saved Christians, don't let someone come around and say to you, you're not a proper Christian because of such and such. And don't say it about other Christians, they're not proper Christians because of such and such. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that we can believe anything we like, do anything we want, and still call ourselves Christians. This is about how people wrongly brought back old restrictions from the law, which we know has been fulfilled in Christ. At the time Paul was writing, you'd have teachers in the church quoting things like Numbers 28, 11. On the first day of each month, present an extra burnt offering to the Lord of two young bulls, one ram, and seven one-year-old male lambs, all with no defects. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't spend the first day of the month sacrificing cows and sheep. And this is, this is easy for us to say, isn't it? Yeah, of course we don't do that. But if you look at it from the perspective of first century Christians, many of whom would have been devout Jews, they'd, they'd been doing that stuff every month for generations without fail for thousands of years. And over those thousands of years, they'd added in all sorts of extra rules and the proper way of doing things, all sorts of stuff that wasn't just part of their day-to-day -day life, it was part of their heritage, their culture. So we can't look down on them for feeling like they should carry on doing those things. But Paul's saying, A, you don't have to do it, and B, don't let anyone judge you for not doing it. It's quite hard to think of a modern equivalent in our part of the church. We're fairly resistant to legalism, or at least we think we are. And that probably means we tend to swing too far the other way. But there are two examples I could think of. One's about Sabbath keeping, and we'll consider that bit in a moment. And the other is smoking. I don't know if it's such a big deal these days, but when I was growing up, some people would really look down their noses at people who smoked, Christians who smoked. And they would question whether those Christians were properly saved. And it was based on a pretty bad interpretation of 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. And people would say that smoking is abusing the temple. I mean, in the immediate context of that verse, Paul's talking about sexual sins. But no, let's make it about smoking. And let's stretch that verse to mean that if you smoke, you're desecrating the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so you can't be a Christian. 
That's how people thought. And I dare say some people still do. But it's quite obviously nonsense, right? Paul was talking about sin, and he was saying that we shouldn't sin because we're Christians. He wasn't saying that smoking was sinful. And he wasn't saying that to sin caused you to lose your salvation. So there you go. If you smoke, don't let people pass judgment on you. But please do consider quitting because it's not very good for you (laughs) or for the people around you. Okay, the other point, uh, Sabbath keeping. Paul says in this verse, don't let anyone judge you with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. He's talking about Jewish sacrifices and celebrations. He's not quite saying here that Christians should ignore those celebrations. Rather, he's saying that you can choose to celebrate or choose not to celebrate. And that doesn't affect your salvation or your standing with God. So don't let your religious teachers tell you otherwise. Let's talk very briefly about the Sabbath, but also let's not get too distracted here. The Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, started at about 6 p.m. on a Friday and ended at about 6 on Saturday evening. And that day, that period of 24 hours, was set aside for rest. Rest is good. Laura Brown testified about this in our service on the 26th of December. Some of us don't get anywhere near enough rest. Now, somehow... This Sabbath got translated into Christi- in Christian thinking into a rule that you mustn't shop on a Sunday. And Christians would look down their noses at other Christians who went shopping on a Sunday. Look, shopping on a Sunday or not shopping on a Sunday makes no difference to your salvation or your standing with God. If we think it makes a difference, I, I can only pray that God reveals to us the true undefeatable power of the sacrifice of Jesus which paid for our sins. We can't undo that power. We're too tiny. Jesus fulfilled the law. He is our perfect rest. Hebrews 4 is marvelous on this point. We don't have time to read it. Just make a note of the reference. Hebrews 4. In this passage we can see how we enter God's rest through our relationship with Jesus. So you may feel that it's good to rest on a Sunday, and I'd agree with you. If it's possible, that's good. Rest is good. Resting on the day where we specifically worship God together is really good. But don't bind each other up in laws about this. Jesus has fulfilled those laws. Instead, we take from that law, from the fourth commandment, the fantastic principle of rest that God demonstrated way back in Genesis. It's bad for us finite, weak human beings to work seven days a week. Not because we'll go to hell, because we'll burn out. Enjoy the rest that God gives you in your life. It can come at unexpected times and in unexpected places. And don't be judged about a Sabbath. Moving on. Verse 17, Colossians 2. These are a shadow of the things to come, Paul says, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
And why is it pointless to judge people about these things? Because we now have something far better. The special food and drink, the festivals, the Sabbath celebrations, these were all a shadow, a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus himself says something amazing about this whole general area. Matthew 11.13. Matthew 11.13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's talking about the Old Testament. That's the prophets and the law. How the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, all those books gathered together spoke of him, the Messiah. The prophets and the law were a shadow of the things to come. They showed faintly, in outline, indistinctly, what Christ would be like, how the kingdom of God would come. So you have in the Old Testament the food and drink used in celebration. But Jesus now says, of the bread, this is my body, and of the wine, this is my blood. The food and drink are shadows. Christ is the reality. In Old Testament times, you had lots of feasts, special spiritual days and celebrations, like the Passover. This was when Israel celebrated how their families were spared in Egypt when the angel of the Lord came to take the firstborn of the Egyptians. They'd sacrifice a lamb as part of this celebration. At the Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and shared the wine, he was at that time celebrating the Passover with his disciples. But more than that, more than the shadow, he was showing them that he, Jesus, was the new Passover lamb. The one who stays the hand of the destroying angel, who stands between us and the righteous wrath of God. And what about the first fruits celebration? This was when the Israelites would bring to God as a sacrifice their own first fruits. So that would be the best of their crops and their herds, the first that came out, laying them down in honor of a holy God, a shadow. And now, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the new first fruit celebration. He's our blessed food and drink, he's the Passover lamb, he's the first fruits, and so on. And we've already seen how Jesus is our rest. The Sabbath was the shadow, in him is the reality. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There are many more examples of how Jesus solidifies what was once seen only as shadow. So the food and drink celebrations are good. Christ is better. The festivals are good. Christ is better. The Sabbath is good. Christ is better. Solus Christus, through Christ alone, hold fast to the head. And holding fast, staying firmly committed to Christ above all, we read verse 18, let no one disqualify you, 
insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That's what I'd call a packed verse of scripture. There's a lot in it. But the basic thrust of it is this. No one is or can be a superior Christian. If you've ever heard or said the phrase, he's a better Christian than me, we need to remove those words from our vocabulary. And I'm talking to myself because I'm pretty sure I've said this, these very words. It's good to strive to do the things that please God, to yearn for the personal holiness that pleases him. But you're either saved or you're not. And that's where we start in this verse. No one can disqualify you. Asceticism is an unnecessarily difficult word in the ESV. The NLT calls it pious self-denial. Basically, it's saying, I'm not going to eat, drink, or do certain stuff and that somehow makes me a better person, a better Christian. Worse, it makes me a better Christian than you. You should give up these things too. And this sort of thinking and rulemaking has happened all throughout history. It was clearly happening in Paul's time, and that's why he writes this. And over the years, there have been people who would literally whip themselves with branches over their backs self-flagellation it was called and this was supposed to beat the body into submission and make you more spiritual rubbish and more recently we've had various Christian denominations demanding that their members abstain from alcohol and often there's good motivation behind that you know for some people especially those who struggled with addiction abstinence is good and essential and we can support them in this by not talking about alcohol or drinking around them. But being teetotal doesn't make anyone holy. We should never think that it does. On the other hand, drinking too much, as we know, is problematic. It leads to debauchery, riotous living, sin. Ephesians 5.18 in the NLT says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. But drinking or not drinking doesn't affect your salvation. We need to be really careful, don't we, what rules we make and understand why we're making them. The second we start to feel a sense of moral or spiritual superiority, that's a red flag. Insisting on worship of angels... I've heard some stuff over the last couple of decades that's come pretty close to that golden dust, angel feathers. But let's not get fixated on angels. This is about any spiritual fad that makes person A feel better than person B or makes person B feel worse than person A. So speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, the Toronto blessing, if we insist on these things... And if people feel inferior because they haven't experienced them, we've gone tragically wrong, my brothers and sisters. The gifts of the Spirit are good, but we don't insist on them. Understanding the end times, if that's even possible, is good. 
but we don't insist on it. We certainly don't insist that people follow any particular view, like the rapture, premillennialism, or any of that. Giving money to people, to, to those people that support others in the work they do in the church, who devote their lives to others, that's good. But we don't insist on it. Let no one disqualify you. If Jesus Christ is truly our Lord and Savior, if you've turned from your sin, you're good. The Holy Spirit's in you, and he'll regenerate you and transform you in his own good time. Even if you sin again, spoiler alert, which you will, you're covered. We live in a constant state of repentance because we need to. But let no one disqualify us, write us out, because we don't like their particular sacred cow. It's great to have visions, but it doesn't make anyone special. The one who's special is the one who gives the visions, not us. Now, people often do all these things, insist on particular traditions, claim special knowledge or revelation, because deep down, they want to feel good about themselves. I mean, honestly, don't we all want to feel good about ourselves? But there's a perfect antidote to that trend, to that feeling, that feeling that we might be inadequate, a failure, or less than others. We don't need to think more of ourselves or less of ourselves. We just need to think of ourselves less, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. Fix our eyes on Christ, not on ourselves or any other human being. Hold fast to the head. We derive our value from him, not from anything we say, do, achieve, believe, or know. We're worth what he paid for us because he paid it. We're worth his life, and that's enough, more than enough. So let's be humble about what we believe, eh? Verse 19, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And here we see the incredible benefit of Paul's approach. If you detach a head from a body, that body won't do very well. If we detach ourselves at any level from Christ, we will not do well. We'll shrivel up. So, clinging to Christ makes sure we're fed by him, fed true spiritual food. Fed not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the body, that's us, the church, the congregation of believers, the body is knit together and grows in the way that God defines growth. If we submit fully and surrender jointly to him, we'll be more unified. We'll love each other more. We'll be working towards the same godly goals. We'll find ways to be in harmony even when we disagree. And we will grow. Growth is a picture of increase in size, so that's seeing more people 
coming to faith. And growth is a picture of increase in maturity. So that's understanding and applying God's word to our lives. That's increasing in wisdom, in humility, in discipline, and in appreciation of God. All that he is and all that he gives to us. By the way, did you know that God wants us to enjoy what he gives to us? Sometimes we feel guilty, don't we? If God gives us good relationships, gives us fun, gives us a love of nature, gives us wholesome entertainment, gives us people who make us laugh, gives us stuff. Don't forget that we have a good father who loves to see joy and delight in his children. Holding fast to the head shouldn't make us somber. God isn't somber. He delights in his own glory, of which we see a shadow in this world that he's created. And we can delight in that glory too. I'm going to close with some practical thoughts. How practically do we hold fast to the head and in doing so lay down other concerns? Now, of course, if you've heard me preach any sermon at all lately, you'll realize this is the point of the sermon at which I suggest we all read our Bibles. So not to disappoint anyone, (laughs) practical suggestion number one is to read the Bible. But it can be hard to know where to start with that, can't it? Or it can feel very dry, as if you're not really getting anywhere. And I know for some, they feel that they've read the same passages so many times that nothing happens anymore. So my second practical suggestion is closely related to the first. Try Lectio Divina. More Latin. Sorry. It means divine reading. It's a really old but hugely productive approach to a devotional time. It consists of reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation. And it can take as much or as little time as you like. And if you've never tried it before, you'll need a guide. So probably the best approach, if you have a smartphone, is to download a Lectio Divina app. Just search for those words. If you don't have a smartphone, try a Christian bookstore. They'll have lots of resources on this. Another practical suggestion is really simple. Take a walk in nature. And while you're walking, be amazed at what God has made. Put here on earth for his pleasure and ours. Or the next time you meet up with friends, take communion. Or spend some time, some moments praying for one another. Use a journal and write down what God has done for you day by day. Share testimonies about your walk with God, the highs, the lows, with Christian friends and in church meetings. Find some engaging Christian books to read or audio books to listen to. Look for ways to be kind to others. Not to look good or feel good, but because we know this will bless them and our Father in heaven. Set up a small group, three or four, to meet and pray together once a month. Keep a note of the things you pray about and the prayers that you see answered. 
clean up what you watch, read, or listen to. Clean up your language. Not to be self-righteous, just to please your father. Bad language usually, but not always, reflects bad attitudes and can create this feedback loop where those attitudes become worse. I'm not just talking about swearing here. I'm talking about gossiping, dishonoring people, smutty jokes, anything you can't honestly imagine Jesus saying. Apologize when you need to, to God and to others. It's hard, but it keeps us humble. Forgive quickly. Do good. Whatever that looks like, not to be self-righteous, not to try and win favor, simply because we have a good father and we want to follow his example. If Christians can't do good in this world, who can? Titus 2, 11 to 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Try fasting. And in ultimately, in all that we say, do, or think, let us hold fast to the head. Solus Christus. Lord God, such a short passage of Scripture, but such a challenging one. And we know, well, I certainly know that I can't really follow this without your help. If the past weeks and years have taught me anything, it is that I'm weak. So I pray for us all, Lord, me, my family, my brothers and sisters, that we are, that you strengthen us to hold fast to our head, to Christ Jesus. Lord, we do want to be sons and daughters that please our Father, but also we don't want to get hung up on rules and regulations. We also need to appreciate all that Jesus has done for us. Any penance we might feel like we need to pay has already been paid, and we thank you for that, Lord. God, pour out your blessings, please, on your church. Help us to be a shining example, not a self-righteous one, to each other and to the world around us, Lord, so that all can be done for your glory.